folks, and welcome to another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast. I feel like I'm living at a, um, a part of my social fantasy piece here in terms of I'm just about to to interview uh, a lady called Michelle Mace Curran, who is a fighter pilot, flew F-16s in combat, and then went on in uh, a team looking at promoting the, the role of the Air Force. And therefore, when you check out her Instagram, you'll see the, the videos of cockpit videos of her flying in synchronization with other uh, jets at high speed and high turns. But also, when you start to hear the stories in there, you start to realize that it is about my my love of Top Gun, but um, what she also starts to tell you is the real story behind this and how Top Gun doesn't give the true portrayal of what they have to go through. And there's so many links in here from what she's talking about today about purposeful practice, psychological safety, the emitting of failure, and therefore the risk that we normally have in businesses versus the risk that they have um, of not emitting failure. Um, but also what I love is that the the almost the subduing of the leadership authorities she talked today about some of the, the brigadiers and other people who would be flying wing and be under the leadership instruction of more junior commander uh, in their flying. So there's so many linkages into how we, we operate in teams and businesses and how we can take that forward. So looking forward to hearing your feedback on this. Enjoy Michelle Curran. So, Michelle Mace Curran. I love the Mace in the middle. Yeah. But talk to us. Who are you? Give a bit of background to the listeners. It'd be lovely to get you to, to talk through your story. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm Michelle Curran and then my call sign is Mace. So occasionally when people aren't familiar with fighter pilot culture and they don't know about call signs, which is becoming less and less with Top Gun being as big as it is, people are like, wait, your parents gave you the middle name Mace? That's so cool. <laughs> I'm like, no, they were not that. They gave me the middle name Marie, which is like the most common middle name in the world, I'm pretty sure. But uh, anyway, so I got that as a fighter pilot in the Air Force, spent 13 years on active duty flying the F-16. Um, I did that all over the U.S. and all over the world. I was stationed in Japan for three years, got to see a lot of Asia. While I was there, I deployed to Afghanistan, got to see that whole part of the world. And then the last three years, I was uh, a pilot for the Air Force Thunderbirds. So the aerial demonstration team um, that if anyone's been to an air show in the States, they're probably familiar with. So that was a pretty, a pretty cool change of career there from the combat side to the performance side. Um, but I loved being in a role where I could inspire other people. And it was just the most rewarding part of that job. And so earlier this year, around April of um, 2022, I left active duty and went off to be an entrepreneur and a speaker and an author, which has also been an adventure and a whole new pivot, but again, has been incredibly rewarding. It's been a wild year and it's it's been awesome. I love your story because I, I, there's a couple of concepts in there that I, I'd love to dig into. But take me back before you came to that journey, and and you know your upside down dreams is is the the nature of how you describe it. But how long ago was this when you said, "Look, this is what I want to do. I want to be a fighter pilot." I want. When did that start? So when I was on the Thunderbirds, people often assumed or I would get asked that a lot. They thought I was a kid that had been at an air show and seen jets fly. I'm like, Hey, that's what I'm going to go do. But I grew up in a small town in Northern Wisconsin. So I just didn't have exposure to that kind of thing. No air shows, no military bases nearby. No one that was still living in my family was in the military. So I just didn't really know what was out there. I had asked my parents at one point in high school 
to take private flying lessons to get my private pilot's license. And they were very super hardworking, working class. And they were like, yeah, that's expensive. Or that's sorry, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and that's kind of just where it, it died at that point. But I think that was a little bit of an inkling that I had house, always felt this draw towards the adventurous side of flying. And I'd always loved roller coasters and been a thrill seeker. And it kind of just seemed along those same lines. But I went to college as a criminal justice major wow. with plans to be an FBI agent, <laughs> which obviously did not quite pan out. Um, but I decided I needed to pay for college or rather my parents encouraged me that I should look at scholarships to help pay for college. After looking at all the options, Air Force ROTC kind of filtered to the top. And that's one way to commission as an officer. So I applied for that program, got a full scholarship to college, which was amazing. Um, but again, was a criminal justice major with plans on doing four years in the Air Force to pay back my time for my education and then going to the FBI. But about halfway through college, we visited a base and I actually saw two fighter jets taking off in full afterburner. And it was dusk. So the afterburner flame was wow. just so bright out the back. And that jet noise, the power of the engines just like vibrates your whole body. And it was just a pivotal moment. I knew at that moment that I wanted to go do that instead. And luckily, I was already in a position being an ROTC where I could keep going with the major I had. All I had to do was the next year of college when they asked, hey, who wants to compete for a fighter spot? Or sorry, not a fighter spot. Getting ahead of myself. For a pilot slot, yep. yeah, who's interested? And raise my hand. And I decided that day that I was going to do that. And I ended up getting one. And I was off to the races from there. So the afterburners was one. What what else is in there? Because I was going to go to the the contrast from being a lead solo, part of a team, yeah. Um, and the individualistic versus the team concept is an interesting one for me because a lot of what you do is highly highly risky, and therefore you in the particularly in the the, the team side you've got to be on your game all the time and you're working in that space. But just fascinated, what else was that drove you to go into the apart from the afterburners to go into be a pilot? Yeah, yeah, I think I was I was a really driven kid and kind of set big goals, and once I set them. That was just my sole focus was working towards that until I made it come true. And this was a long game for this one, for sure. You know, sophomore year of college, deciding that's what I wanted to do. And it took another, what, five plus years until I was actually a qualified fighter pilot and only as a wingman, like the lowest level of proficiency of fighter pilots. So it's not something that happens overnight. Um, but I, I was competitive um, and driven and it kind of checked those boxes. It was definitely challenging, which I, what I, which was one thing I wanted. And then that thrill seeker kind of adventurous part of my personality thought it was going to be a perfect fit. You know, I loved roller coasters. I loved going upside down. I loved going fast and what better place to do that than in the cockpit of a fighter jet. Absolutely. The dreams that you had in those days to, to do that. I mean, you talked in uh, in a couple of bits that I've seen you writing and the, the work you need to do, the personal reflections, and then the dark days. Let's let's talk about the work and what it takes to, to get to where you, you got to. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't quite realize how much work was required. I knew that it was competitive to get specifically fighter aircraft once you're already in flight school. I had a class of 25 students and we only had two fighter aircraft that ended up being available and I got one of the two. So I knew that even getting the opportunity to step into one of those airframes was 
the odds were against me. We'll say that. And then once I got there, it was kind of like this huge victory of holy crap, I did it. Here I am. And then it was a little bit of a gut check because all this stuff started to pile on that I needed to know that was way beyond the physical flying of the airplane. This wasn't just, you know, altitudes and headings and knowing the systems of the aircraft. It was tactics and weapons systems and understanding the enemy's weapons. And it was just way, way more complicated and technical than I thought it was going to be. Um, That was the first time when I was like, huh, maybe a criminal justice major wasn't the best to set me (laughs) up for this. Uh, There's a lot of engineers that become pilots. So I think that helps a little bit. But there was definitely for the first few years, this time frame where I was felt completely in over my head. And that's where the imposter syndrome really became a thing. Because I constantly felt like I was just drowning in information I needed to know. But I also felt like I had to prove myself because I was one of two women in a squadron of almost 50 pilots. So I was definitely under a microscope. And I also felt like I had this reputation to uphold for female fighter pilots as a whole, which there's all these additional pressures you get into with being you know, a minority in a kind of a competitive um, setting. But then just being new and in a really difficult career, I think a lot of people experience, regardless of gender, um, that feeling of just not being good enough. Now I realize that's normal. (laughs) But at the time, I was pretty sure I was the only person that felt that way. And that I just did not belong there. And every day I was, you know, sneaking another one past when I made it to the next day. And no one realized that I actually wasn't smart enough or a good enough pilot to be in the role that I was in. And it's fascinating to me because the, the, the amount of information you had to, to, to take on board and you're talking about speeds and judgments. And, you know, I've watched a couple of the videos where, you know, it's just the smallest fraction. There's that amazing one where you're looking out the side to check on, on a, your, your colleagues to hold a position in there. But, but what I was always fascinated by, I think when we talked the first time, I met a, a lady who's the mother of a Top Gun, uh, pilot. And she talked about, and, and you mentioned this before as well, it's almost an hour of flying and then ridiculous amounts of reflection and analysis that you do to get there, which I think most organizations could do with because they tend to do an hour of work and very little reflections. Talk me through that about the learning curve to do that. Yeah. One of the first things you're taught when you kind of step into the fighter pilot culture is that the debrief is where the learning actually happens. Um, you prepare for the flight as much as you can. You try to rely on that training and preparation while you're in the cockpit, but things are just happening so fast that if you make a mistake, you don't have the time to reflect and dwell on it. You have to move on to the next task at hand or you're going to get yourself in trouble and get behind. Um, so after you land, that's when you have the chance to you know, take a breath and then really look at what actually happened. Look at the facts. Um, all the flights are recorded you know, at the cockpit recording where you can see all the data, airspeed, altitude, G-forces, And that is all analyzed afterwards. And you look at where the mistakes were made and like where the big things went wrong. And then you kind of start peeling back the onion is what we usually say to figure out why that happened Um, and get all the way back to, you know, oh, I was I was late to make this turn that I should have made. Like, okay, that's not the reason we failed. Like, why were you late? What information did you not know? Or was did you have the information, but you didn't process it? Or was it lack of knowledge? Or was it a choice to disregard it? There's all these things you can pull it back and pull it back until you get to kind of the underlying cause. And then you talk about how you can fix that for next time. And so especially when the flight is in a formal upgrade, which is where someone in the formation is moving from 
like one proficiency level to the next one. They're going through like a formal syllabus to do that and they're being graded. The debrief could be five hours long for a one hour wow. flight. It's hmm. it's pretty crazy. I think a lot of people have the misconception that we show up to the squadron at you know 10 a.m. The crew chief throws us the keys to the jet. You get in, you take <laughs> off, you go fly, you land, you throw them back the keys and be like, thanks, Dom, have a good day. And you go home or go to the gym. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's not the case. It's like 12 hours, um, 12 hour days revolving around a one hour flight sometimes. Wow. I was watching um, Tom Cruise just to, to come back, but not about Top Gun. This was about him doing a stunt for a Mission Impossible. And one of the things we talk about in leadership is purposeful practice. But I think he was, he was jumping off with a parachute on a motorbike off the cliff in Norway. And it was something like, I'll probably get this wrong, he did 130 motorbike jumps to practice and drill into it and some ridiculous amounts of, you know, parachute jumps to get it. But that's what we're talking about because it's, it's almost hardwiring into you that ability to make those judgments at speed, which none of us in organizations uh, learn from. So your entrepreneur career is, is about teaching that for people, how you build the trust and other pieces uh, in there. Yeah. Yeah. It's really about pushing people to step outside their comfort zone and where they're at and push through that fear, which often is a fear of failure and really recognizing failure as a gift that gives you this new uh, it, it gives you this advantage that you didn't have before, right? Like you have all these skills that you just learned, even if it's just learning the way not to do something. Um, and it, and so it has like this tangible gift of skills for the specific thing you're trying to chase down. But over time, it also teaches grit and perseverance. And it kind of exercises that muscle of being willing to push through when things are uncomfortable. So I really encourage people to do that. But as far as the trust and teamwork, it's all intertwined because so much of that comes down to the individual being willing to push through discomfort and admit their mistakes, which comes with a lot of vulnerability, but you can't get to the high performance level as a team where you really trust each other unless you know the people around you are going to fess up when they do something wrong and be willing to learn for the betterment of the team as a whole rather than their ego. And so that comes with being okay with that failure and not and even if you're afraid of it, just accepting it and still going forward. That's something I never really thought about because, you know, you're you're always trying to, uh, in a competitive environment, particularly when you're two women in 50 pilots, you almost are, are trying to show confidence, yeah? But the vulnerability is almost trained into you by the five-hour debrief in there. So how does that show up in ego? Because I mean, it's interesting when you said that, you know, we have that view of uh, fighter pilots having being gym, gym people and then, you know, confident people. But that's not what I hear is, is the main driver, is it? So one of the big things when you talk about Top Gun and the characters in that movie are often portrayed as arrogant to some level, or at least there's a couple in there that are arrogant. And actually, the, my most popular LinkedIn post ever, it went viral, was me talking about how that's wrong, yeah. um, which people took big offense to me insulting the Top Gun movie, apparently, even though I thought it was great. <laughs> For entertainment value, it was amazing. But my big thing in there is that in that high stress environment where you actually could be in a combat situation where you're going to war, you have to be confident in your skills. So confidence is required, but arrogance will get you killed. Arrogance is the thing where you 
start to have blind spots where you start to miss your vulnerabilities. And that's when you stop learning. And so in a fighter squadron, from an outside perspective, it can look like arrogance. Mm-hmm. But the people that are legitimately arrogant and not willing to drop their or check their egos at the door when it comes to something like a debrief, they're weeded out early. They don't survive in that culture for long. They have to be willing to admit their mistakes, to take feedback, to implement that feedback, to have those open kind of vulnerable discussions where you're dropping those barriers of trying to come across as perfect and really lay it out there in order for the betterment of the team. I think it's, you know, when you heighten it, that uh, it can cause a death. So, you know, the seals work that a lot of people like Jocko Willing uh, are talking about yourself in terms of the arrogance. And that's where a lot of people have a misconception in here. So what you're talking about is that if you aren't vulnerable, if you can't show vulnerability as a team, what they don't want is that arrogance. They want somebody who is willing to act as an, an operator as a team. So I'm fascinated by that in terms of how you are recruited into that, you know? So how did they spot you or how did they spot the 50 people to, to work at? What's the recruitment process? So initially it's who is interested in it. That's how you start down that path. Not everyone wants to be a fighter pilot. I think that's a common uh, misconception is that anyone who becomes a pilot in the Air Force competed for to become a fighter pilot. And if they didn't get it, they weren't good enough. There's several people who don't want to fly upside down and pull G's, but are great pilots in other aircraft. But there definitely is a smaller and smaller uh, wicket that you go through to make it through the funnel to actually get to being in the position to do the job. And a lot of that is the flying skill as you start to go through pilot training and all these new skills are put on you and you have all these check rides and you're doing instruments and you're doing low level flying and you're doing formation flying eventually. How you actually are doing on those flights is a huge part of it. But also a key part of your ranking in your class is how your flight commander, who's your immediate supervisor, ranks you. And a big portion of how they rank you is your willingness to take instruction, your leadership in the in the group, uh, your openness to feedback, your attitude. So those traits right there in pilot training, which is the first step in this whole journey, those people that can't take feedback and can't take instruction, it starts to show and they often won't do that well, even if their skills in the cockpit are pretty good. I love that. And sports the same, because I talked to a few friends who've got sons who are in soccer academies. And it's fascinating. They say it's not the most talented people who get through it. It is about that feedback, listening to feedback and character. And I suppose part of it in my mind is about the leadership side of that, because you've got the commander who's assessing you, but the leadership of that team of people must be very difficult because it is about, you can't do it in midair. You can't do that leadership. It's before and after in, in a lot of cases. So what, what does leadership look like in that, that environment? Yeah, it's a lot of the things we already talked about. So airborne, the person leading the formation, other than the Thunderbirds, which is kind of a unique setup, but in other squadrons, you could have a young flight lead who's a captain who's been flying for maybe four years, leading a four ship of four aircraft. And the wing commander, a, like a one-star general, could be a wingman in that formation. That's not that uncommon. Or mm. the squadron commander could be flying in a wingman position where they're listening to the direction of that young flight lead for the entire flight. And it's very clear whoever is in that position for that flight 
is in command when you're in the air, no matter the rank of the people on the wings. So that's one thing um, that's pretty unique. And then in the debrief, the same thing, that flight lead is leading that debrief. And even that colonel or that brigadier general or someone who far outranks them, if they made a mistake, you're still going to talk about it openly the same as you would if it was the youngest pilot in the squadron making the mistake. So that's a huge part of it is that the leaders are still willing to be vulnerable and have humility and drop that facade of perfection and having all the answers in the formal flight setting, the flight, the debrief. But then in the squadron as a whole, the best leaders that I've seen are the ones that are willing to stand up in front of the squadron when some big event happens and we're like, hey, we are tasked with this. We are spinning up for this deployment. Some big thing is happening. We have all these things we have to do to get ready. And I don't have all the answers. So I need you, the tactical expert. I need you, the expert in deployments. I need you, the expert in X, Y, and Z to fill in the pieces of the puzzle to make the best team. So they know their people well. So they know the strengths and the weaknesses of the people around them. And they know how to share the mission with them and motivate them where all those people end up invested and they understand how they fit into that puzzle. So they feel like they have ownership of their piece of it. Um, so that's where. I think the best leaders being willing to admit they don't know everything, but then know how they can find the people that do. So a strong emphasis on team then. Yeah. And a strong emphasis on more being citizens of that team rather than being the leader or the ruler of that team. That's fascinating. Yeah. There's still the instances where there's, you know, a strong rank structure in the military, obviously. So there are the moments when stuff needs to happen immediately and there's not time to sit down and be like, this is why. And here's how you fit in. It's like, Hey, this needs, we are rolling out in 12 hours. This has to happen. Go do it. And that's when you fall back on the rank structure and everyone's like, you know, yes, sir, here we go. Um, but you have a balance of those two things. It's not like that all the time. So I want to come back because one of the, the things that you love, and I, I see this, is is the inspiration of the dreams. In uh, you know, when I was watching the clip of the young seven year old girl who just looked up to, idolized you um, for that, and and to do what you've done to be two of fifty to go and be the first lead solo, female lead solo, if I'm right in that, is second. is a big second, yeah. yeah. <sighs> But that's still a big thing for uh, particularly, you know, I've got two daughters who, when I was saying I was recording this today, I came in and said, guess who I'm recording with? And they were like, wow, yeah, it's amazing. So how do you deal with that? And what's the inner story you tell yourself when you're uh, talking to them? It's varied. It's been a little bit of a journey. I, I didn't really see myself in that role until I was formally in it as a Thunderbird pilot. Kind of prior to that, I was like, oh, you know, the jet doesn't care what gender you are. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. I knew there were some additional pressures on me um, to kind of prove myself, like I mentioned earlier. But as far as actually executing the mission, I didn't think it really mattered. When I stepped into being a Thunderbird pilot where the mission is to recruit, but it's also to inspire. That's a huge portion of the team's mission. I realized that it was an asset in that situation because there's only six pilots on the team. And for the five years before me, they had all been men. It had been a five-year gap since the last woman flew. And I ended up being the only one while I was on the team. And luckily there's another one now. So there wasn't a huge gap after me, but you can't understate the value for kids, especially to see someone that looks like them doing something. I think it's easy for an outsider who hasn't experienced 
that lack of a role model who looks like them to be like, oh, what's the big deal? Like a little girl shouldn't care if she's a girl or a boy, like she can go do whatever she wants. That's, that's just a blanket statement that doesn't dig into the nuances. And for those little girls to watch the air show, which is just such an in-your-face visual representation of power and precision and teamwork, and then to see the Jets taxi in, see us get out, and I take off my helmet and I have a braid that swings out, and then we walk over to the autograph line and get to engage with them. Time and time again, I saw a lot of times parents would drag their kids up there because they were shy. And a mom would be like, look, she just flew those jets. Like that jet that was upside down, that was her flying it. And when the the daughter would realize that, it was like a light bulb went on in their... I could see it in their eyes. And all of a sudden they realized that what was possible for them in the world was bigger than they had thought. And to be in a position where you can do that for people, the most rewarding thing. Amazing. You smooth over that fact to your woman going through that two of 50. If you look back at the dark days that we were talking about before, when, when, what have those moments been that have you've had those doubts about yourself? Because imposter syndrome, you and I both suffer from this. We've talked about this already. Tell me about the dark days in there and what you've learned about overcoming them, because that's part of the story, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, for sure. So the most difficult time in my career was early on. That first assignment I had in Japan. You know, I was a brand new fighter pilot. I was still figuring out the culture. I didn't really understand how it worked. And I had that misconception that everyone was type A, everyone was almost arrogant, overly confident. And it took me a long time to realize the nuances of that and how the team really worked together and where the trust came from. So when I showed up, I'm young, I'm like, maybe 24, 25 years old. I'm again, you know, one of just a couple of women in that squadron. The culture is very, it can feel very abrasive and intimidating. And so I'm like, okay, I have to be type A, overly confident in your face. I have to always know the answer. I always have to be sure of myself. I need to, you know, just whenever someone asks me a question, I have to have, have the answer and confidently say it. That's not my personality. I'm actually pretty reserved and introverted. Um, so I was playing dress up every day you know, fake it till you make it, which is a saying I kind of hate because I did that for a couple of years and it was exhausting. Um, and it actually probably held me back because I wasn't willing to show that vulnerability that we talked about. Um, I was trying to save face in debriefs. I would only admit stuff that was obvious to other people. And I didn't ask questions when I should have because I didn't want people to realize that I didn't know the thing I was asking about. And I had to prove myself. I had to set the the reputation for any female pilot that was going to follow me. And that all seems fine when you get started. But when you're on year two or year three of trying to do that, you realize that no one actually knows you. You're in a foreign country where your family and your friends that do know you aren't there. Your coworkers are also your family and friend. Like that's that's your whole world there, right? I don't speak Japanese. We all live on base. So all my neighbors are also other fighter pilots in my squadron, which can be amazing, but can also be really stressful when you're putting on a facade. Um, and to operate like that all the time, I got to a point where I was probably actually clinically depressed. I should have like, sought out help, but I didn't realize it. And I just kept trudging along because I didn't have another choice. But there was a point in there where I had I had wanted to be a fighter pilot so bad 
that I would actually visualize finding out that I was going to fly a fighter jet when I was trying to push myself in like a PT test, a physical fitness test. And I was trying to run just a little bit faster, but I was redlining, you know, heart rate and lungs and everything. I was like, this is my carrot. I'm like a dog on the racetrack chasing this vision. And then I get there and there were points when I felt so in over my head and so unqualified and like so much of a fraud that I would have left. I would have walked away from that dream that I'd worked for for five plus years if I hadn't owed a formal contract to the Air Force. I didn't have the option. It is a fascinating piece for me because what you're talking about here and everything you've talked about is reinforcing this piece about, you know, the conference called Risky Business now where surgeons um, you know, and finance people are going to learn how to be in a place where they're psychologically safe, to, to share vulnerability, to share true to themselves, to not waste their energy on anything but whatever they're doing, saving the patient or, or flying. But actually, you were probably in the most intense environment you could be in, in terms of that dream, then a fixed contract that you needed to pay off. Yeah. Plus this push of being a woman in that male environment and then being in probably what a hothouse of being on the base and not being able to have your family or other people around you. So looking back on that, yeah, what's been your biggest thing that you've taken for the your journey into to being what we call a civvy street yeah in the uk moving into the the civilian um scenarios that you're, you're facing what have you taken yeah so i went through this pivot point kind of the middle of my career leaving japan going on to my next assignment where i looked back on that three years and i was just like holy crap i can't do that for another 10 years like that that's just not sustainable and i also realized that I don't know what cued it if it was that physical move to a new squadron, a new group of people back to the States. Um, but I was like, all right, no one, no one is going to fix this for me. No one's coming to save me if you want to use platitudes. But I was like, I, I have to fix this. This is me taking ownership of it. And as I looked back at that first assignment, I wasn't proud of it. I wasn't happy with it. And I realized that there had been all of these opportunities that had come up over those three years that would have been really good for me as a pilot and as an officer and as a person to grow and learn, but I would never volunteer for them. I would actually be in the back just praying I didn't get chosen for them because they came with a chance for me to fail in front of everyone. And I was so scared of that and they were so outside my comfort zone. And so kind of the line in the sand I drew for myself is that I knew when those times popped up. I had that feeling of certain uncertainty in my stomach where I knew I should go after it, but I was scared. And it was really easy for me to see all those. I could have written a list of all the times I had let things pass me by over the last three years. I was like, okay, when that happens next, you're going to raise your hand. You're going to say yes to it. You're going to put your name in the hat to go do whatever the thing is. And so that was on the professional side. But I also adopted that kind of mentality in my personal life, in my hobbies. And I had all these things I had wanted to do. I'd really wanted to get into technical mountaineering. It's something I'd always been fascinated by, but there's a barrier to entry. You have to have some formal training there and some skills and equipment and all the things. So I was like, why not now? So I started climbing mountains. I started running marathons. I traveled to Nepal by myself and did a, joined up with a group of people I didn't know and trekked Everest Base Camp. And yeah, it was just all these little things that I'd always wanted to do, but were uncomfortable. And I started doing them. And as I did that in my personal life and my hobbies, 
started to build my confidence to do that in my professional life. And I still felt that feeling of unease every time. But the more I did it, the more I started to see the rewards that came with each of those things and that feeling of of unease and that fear that was consuming me and paralyzing me before started to go away till it became the thing that I did. When that feeling of excitement came up where I'm like, oh, look at that cool opportunity. Um, An example that was really clear to me was about halfway through that next assignment. So I've been flying F-16s for what, six or seven years at that point. I saw an email that Poland was looking for American F-16 instructors to come fly there for the summer and teach their pilots. And that was one of those things that initially I was like, that sounds super cool. I get to live in Poland for an entire summer. I get to fly their F-16s, which have some cool stuff that ours don't have. They're newer. What an amazing experience. But then I immediately was struck by that gut punch of, I had just become an instructor pilot. Uh, There were plenty of people that had way more experience than me. Poland had never had a woman fly their F-16s. So I didn't know what their culture was like as far as would they welcome me with open arms or would I get you know, the side eye or would people not take instruction from me? And that was far enough into that journey, far enough removed from that moment where I'd been like, okay, you're going to start saying yes to these things that I had some perspective on it. And I immediately realized when I was having this internal conflict, what was happening. And I was like, why are you even second? Like, why are you considering not doing this? This is exactly the type of thing you've been trying to set yourself up for the last 18 months, two years. You've been doing all this legwork to get yourself to a level of confidence so you can go do something like this. So I went and there were there were times I could have definitely been more experienced, but I got through it. And it was still one of the most rewarding times of my career. It was such a cool experience. And it was that stuff that put me in a spot where I even thought about putting my name in the hat for the Thunderbirds because it was something I had always been intrigued by, but had also thought I was not good enough to go do. Hmm. I find it fascinating talking to you and that, uh, you know, the two times we've talked, one is just how much and how, uh, how much you want this, want what you would do and how you want to do it. But the courage it has taken to go from this introverted, shyer person, younger to this thrill seeking um, person who's gone off and done all of these things. But the, the key thing for me is the purposeful learning that you've done over the time and how articulate you are about that learning and how it plays a part in your life. And I, I know that this journey into teaching others through your messages is important to you and inspiring others. And I just, I want to say thank you for coming on and sharing all of that because we could go on talking and I'm sure there's a lot of people who are listening who probably will play this back to their daughters or their sons in terms of lessons about how to do this. I I love it. Michelle, it's just been a a brilliant conversation. If people want to find out more about this, do the geeking out that I've done going into being a Top Gun fan. Yep. And I'm being educated in what is true. (laughs) Where can people find you? Yeah. So we, I kind of dodged your last question about becoming an entrepreneur, but it was that big lesson of, you know, those leaps of faith. And I felt the calling to continue to help other people and inspire them. And so that's why I took the leap into, of, faith into entrepreneurship. So I write a lot about everything we talked about on LinkedIn um, because I'm really taking all of these things I learned and translating them into what your everyday person, I don't mean that in a condescending way, but your people who haven't been in a fighter 
cockpit uh, can use. So whether that's in your personal life and personal development or in your business. And so that's on LinkedIn. So there it's Michelle Mace in quotes, uh, Kern. So that's easy way to find me. And then I also put out a lot of content on Instagram and that's Mace underscore Kern. And there's a ton of cockpit flying videos on there, especially if you scroll back a little ways, there's probably a couple hundred of them. And you can really see what we've talked about. You can see that video of me looking sideways while we're flying a loop. You can see flying upside down, pulling nine Gs, all the things. So that's a great spot as well. And then last one, um, my website is just macecurrent.com. And that's where you can do media inquiries. You can book me for speaking events, which is my primary um, source of income now. And that's my main business is speaking. And it's so cool to stand on a stage and share my story and share my struggles and see it impacting people. I can see it on their faces when they relate. And I love it so much. This year has been incredible and I'm so excited for next year. Well, it's been a gift to meet you and a gift to hear your story. And uh, I'm sure we will talk more and looking forward to hopefully collaborating in the future with you as well. It'd be lovely to do. So Michelle, huge thanks. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. This has been a pleasure. amazing episodes. Uh, Michelle, fantastic to hear her story. Inspiration for young girls in terms of going to, to be a fighter pilot. But for me, just going through everything that she was talking about there, it's this purposeful pushing herself to, to do things that she wants to do, but fears them. I was reading a quote the other day about, you know, they, one of the good things about death is that the fear goes away. However, when we're in life and we want to take opportunities, how do we, to feel that fear, to fear failure and to, to grasp opportunities. And she talked about the work, the personal reflection in the dark days, and therefore some great stories, great parallels, um, in there and that we can learn from. My biggest thing here is about when I, when I listen to that is about how we can take this into business. Cause a lot of people say, ah, sports, military doesn't work. However, there is, there's, there's this, how do we create the systems of leadership that allow people to be effective, to reduce authority in, in there so people can tell the truth to con- admit their failures, show vulnerability in there. And there's some great stories from Michelle in there about how she was able to do that and how she learned from it. So amazing, um, 35 minutes to spend with an incredible person. So thank you, Michelle. Look forward to welcoming you back in another episode of the Leadership Tales podcast very soon.